Good morning, Grace. It's great to see you. Actually, I can't see you. You can see me, but I can't see you. I can just see a little Sony camera. Uh, a couple of reminders uh, before we get started. First reminder is this. Uh, we sent an email out yesterday, and there should be links popping up somewhere either before or after the service today on your screen there on Facebook to fill out your prayer cards. Make sure you fill those out so that we can pray for each other. It's even more important, I would say, during this time when we cannot be with each other physically. Uh, it makes it that much more important for us to connect um, through our Savior and through the Holy Spirit in prayer for one another. So please, please, please go to that link. Or you can go to the website, uh, and there's a, a tab on the website so that you can fill out that prayer card that you normally fill out on Sunday mornings. You can fill out online. So please, please, please do that. Reminder number two is to give. I don't want to be a broken record, but at the same time, this is something that's really, really, really important for us to continue to do. Uh, unique giving opportunities for us as a church are already starting to come in. Uh, and so we want to be able to meet those needs and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that way. So I would encourage you, encourage you to, again, uh, click on that link. You can go to the website. You can mail checks into the, the address. All that information should be on there. So I'd encourage you guys to not forget those two things that are really important. Small groups, if you're not a, a part of a small group that's meeting online throughout the week, you can email us and we'll get you uh, get you set up into one of those groups. Uh, we just want to encourage you to stay connected as much as you can. But at the same time, um, I talked about this a little bit in my email yesterday, we also want to take advantage of the time that God's given us to rest. Uh, so I just want to remind you of that in the stress, in the fear, in the anxiety, the uncertainty of the, 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 the lives that we're living right now. I just want to remind you uh, to rest. Unplug from Facebook, unplug from the internet, uh, maybe a day a week or at least or so. Take some hours off. Get in your Bible. Uh, I had a, uh, the president of the, the Bible school that I went to uh, was famous for asking his students, don't you folks ever read your Bibles? And I want us as a church to be able to answer that question, yes. So make sure that that's something that you're not neglecting as we all have extra time during this. Make sure that you're filling that extra time with the Word of God. Amen? All right, let's get started. Uh, we started a mini-series, a new mini-series last week on the symbols of Christ as we're leading up to Easter. And so if you were with us last week, we talked about the symbol of communion and what the Lord's Supper means to us when we take the bread and when we drink the wine, we drink the cup, what do those things mean to us? And so I've got the elements here next to me, and during our worship at the end of the service, we're going to be taking communion together uh, in our homes separately, but spirit um, together in the Spirit of the Lord. So we're going to do that, and we talked about that last week. If you weren't with us last week, you can go to the website, you can go to our YouTube page, Grace Staten, and you can check that out. But today we're going to be talking about a different symbol. And I think that in a lot of ways, this symbol um, is the symbol that all of our faith centers around. And that's the symbol of the cross. Um, but I think that sometimes when we talk about the cross, uh, we can talk about it in terms that, um, that are looking th through a pinhole uh, and not looking through a wide angle lens. And so my hope today is that we can view the symbol of the cross of Christ through a wide-angle lens to see the entire picture that it represents. If we look back through history, starting uh, when the church was born out of the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
uh, we can see how important the cross was to them. And as we saw Christianity kind of envelop the Roman Empire and then throughout uh, Christian history, we see it everywhere. Uh, and so now we see it, we watch historical movies, we see it on the shields of crusaders. Um, we see it on the steeple of churches and in other areas as well. Um, we even see it in some of our, uh, our, our medical professionals actually wear like the Red Cross um, has a cross on it. Uh, there are different, different emblems that we see that we don't view as that, but we see crosses all around us. We see them in graveyards. We see them everywhere. Um, so the, the cross is something that's important, not just to Christians, but actually, actually shaped much of our, our, our world history, especially in the West. Um, so here's the question that we have to start with. How did a symbol of a device that was, that was made and spent hundreds of years, the Romans spent hundreds of years perfecting the cross as a torture device, how did the symbol of that torture device become a symbol of hope? That's a really profound question. It's one that we Christians have to answer. And it's one that we hope to answer this morning. But the bigger question is why? Why did Jesus die on a cross? That's the question that we as, uh, as Christians um, hopefully have already answered for ourselves. And we need to be able to answer that question for others. It was extremely important to the early church. And so as we go through this today, I'm going to read a ton of Scripture. So that's going to be on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with us as we read these Scriptures. But we're going to start in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, really key here is when uh, he says in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he says this, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's what that means. So the Jews had a belief that their Messiah was coming to save them. 
and that their Messiah would set them free from their enemies, would conquer their enemies, and set up this kingdom that we saw, that we have seen as we've read through the Old Testament. This foretold kingdom, this foretold king, this foretold Messiah. And so for that Messiah to then die on a Roman cross would be utter foolishness to them. They couldn't reconcile those two things happening. And then Gentiles, again, for them to to, to hear that they were going to be saved and they were to lift up and glorify a man who died on a Roman cross and was tortured and humiliated seemed idiotic to them. And so again, we see that, that Paul says it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It doesn't make any sense that we would preach hope through a cross that we would preach salvation and grace through death and suffering. But Paul, I think, spells it out really well here when he says that God chose what is low. God chose what is weak. God chose what is foolish to shame that which is strong, to shame that which is wise. God doesn't work the way that we think He should work. And so He gives to us a cross. The cross is almost on every page of the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so what we've been doing as a church, as we've been reading through the Bible, um, one of my friends put it this way, as we're doing this year of biblical literacy, we're crawling inside the story. We're, we're reading the Bible from cover to cover, and we're crawling inside the story and inviting it to speak to us, to speak to our hearts, to speak to our souls, to shape us as people. So if we, and this is what's really important, and this is why I talked about the peephole versus the wide-angle lens, if we view the cross outside of that cover-to-cover story, it loses so much of its meaning. It loses so much of its meaning. If we, if we take uh, just the cross and we don't look at the entire story and then we go to the world around us and say, Jesus saved you from your sins. To a world that doesn't know that it's full of sin, that means nothing. It means nothing. It carries no weight with them. It's not convicting to them. It just seems like gibberish to them. It seems like religious, empty talk to them. But if we are able to take the story of the world, the story of God, and our story as humanity, and and again, crawl inside the story of the Bible and present the story of the cross in that manner, And there's not a human on earth that cannot identify with that story. But we have to know it. And so that's one of the big reasons why I'm saying, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. That's why we started this journey through the Bible back in September. There's a giant narrative to the cross. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And it starts in Genesis. Let's go there. Genesis chapter 3. So in this part of the story, in this part of the Bible, you remember we weren't there that long ago. This is immediately following when uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden. It was, everything was good, right? And God said, you can eat from any of the tree except for this one tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. And as long as you don't eat from that tree, we will have peace. We will be in the garden. They were walking with God, talking with God. They had intimate relationship with God. And then there was this moment when Eve was tempted to eat by the serpent, right? She was tempted to eat of the fruit and she chose to do that and Adam chose to do it with her. 
And then God has a conversation with Adam and Eve and with the serpent. And this is one of the things he says. And this is really important if we're going to understand the entire or, uh, story arc of uh, the Bible and ultimately of the cross. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake. He, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible because it sets uh, it sets the tone for all the symbolism that we're going to see from here through the cross and through the book of Revelation. All the symbolism we see, it all starts right here. This idea of there being enmity between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the seed or the offspring of the snake. He shall bruise your head. He will give you a killing blow, but it won't come without cost. You will bruise his heel. Now, The offspring of the woman that deals the killing blow to the snake is the Redeemer. So we can see that right from Genesis chapter 3, very, very beginning of the story. But it also won't come without cost. It also tells us that this Redeemer will do something that the man and the woman couldn't do, right? That's where we get this idea of substitutionary atonement. The fact that Adam and Eve are not going to be the ones that pay this cost. Adam and Eve are not going to be the ones uh, to, to deal this killing blow to the serpent. Their offspring will. He will be the substitute that will pay for their failure, their sin, their brokenness. Now, it's very important that we line up uh, what's going on here because one of the things that God told to Adam and Eve about one of the consequences of eating from the tree was what? That they would die. So the consequence of this broken relationship with God was death. And so th this, this idea of death being a consequence is incredibly important to the story of the cross because if death is the consequence, um, it will require a sacrifice of life to conquer that death. This is what we see all through the Old Testament, through all of uh, the, um, the sacrificial system. And in fact, we see it in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why we see this in Genesis 3.15. You will bruise, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There will be shedding of blood in order to redeem the broken relationship. There will be victory over the super serpent, but it will come at a great cost. This is the idea that God is going to provide redemption for his people. It starts in Genesis 3.15 and it goes all the way through the Old Testament. There was never a system in place where uh, the Israelites redeemed themselves. Everything that they did through the Old Testament and through the sacrificial system was always a picture of the Redeemer that was to come that was going to set them free. They were never redeeming themselves. This is shown again and again and again uh, all the way through all the covenants in the Old Testament. We see it very, very clearly in the story of Abraham when God asks him to sacrifice his only son, Jacob, whom God promised that he was going to set up Abraham's family through Isaac, not Jacob, excuse me. Um, 
And then he says, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. And then as Abraham and Isaac are going to make this sacrifice, and Isaac asks his dad, where's the lamb? Do you remember Isaac, or Abraham's response? He responded simply, God will provide the lamb. That's a prophetic statement of God's redeeming us as mankind, God redeeming humanity back to himself. The Old Testament points to that constantly, over and over again. Now, one of, the, uh, one of my favorite ways and one of my favorite scriptures where we see this happening is in Numbers 21. Uh, you're going to see a picture on your screen right now. And the, the, this, this story in Numbers 21 is when the Israelites, during the Exodus, they're going through the desert to the promised land that God promised uh, to give them as their new home. And as they're doing this, uh, re- there were repeated times where they would grumble right? Things didn't go as they wanted, and they would start to grumble. So one of the times they really started to grumble, um, and, and part of the consequence of their grumbling was that these poisonous snakes were going throughout the camp of the Israelites, biting them, and they were getting sick, and they were starting to die. And so then God told Moses to make this statue of a serpent on a pole, and to lift it up. And then he told the Israelites, all the people, that if they were to look at this statue that they would be healed that they would be saved and this is kind of a like for most of us we see this we're like well that's a really really weird way um, of pointing to jesus but yet that's exactly what it's doing it's pointing to jesus in fact in the new testament in the book of john jesus himself actually says this in in john 3 14 he says and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up Now, here's the really important part of that. And sometimes when we read this, we can get confused. Why on earth would Jesus equate himself with the serpent? Because isn't the serpent part of the curse? Way way back in the beginning, the serpent is the tempter. Uh, The serpent was cursed. And so why now is Jesus comparing himself to a statue of a snake being lifted up on a pole? Here's why. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. And just like last week, as we looked throughout the Bible and we saw all this rich symbolism uh, that was pertaining to the meal that we now know as the Lord's Supper, I want, you to, I want you to recognize the symbolism that exists in all of this surrounding the cross. Galatians chapter 3. Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. You see that? So the curse was represented by the snake and Christ becomes the curse for us. That's what we see in in Numbers 21 when when Moses lifts up the snake on the cross and says, look at this snake, believe that you will be healed and it will be so. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is back to John, excuse me. Back to John chapter 3. So John 3, 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he continues in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked at the serpent that was lifted up and were healed of the venomous bites, So we look at Christ and receive redemption. 
Verse 16, for God so loved the world. We all know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we see this constantly through the Old Testament and through the, Old, through the New Testament, before Jesus came and then after Jesus came. We see this, these symbols, all these pictures pointing to Jesus, pointing to the cross. Jesus himself over and over and over tells us these things. We're going to see some more of this in a minute. Second Corinthians chapter 5. For God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. This is a one-sentence summary of the entire Bible, right? For God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. This is the, this is the tip of the arrow, the tip of the spear. If we're going to accomplish anything through the story of the Bible, this is it. This is where it all comes. This is where it all starts. This is where it all ends. Let's go back to the book of John. In John chapter 12, and Jesus answered them, and said this, the hour for the Son of Man, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, again, is pointing to the cross, saying that uh, I must die in order for what I came to do to be accomplished. Genesis 3.15, right? You will bruise his head, or he will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. Jesus said, I must die. The Son of Man must die. But uh, listen to how he talks about it. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. This is antithetical to everything that we know as humans. That someone will be glorified through torture and death. It makes no sense to us. And this is what Paul was talking about in that opening passage that we read, how he chose what is low, chose what is foolish, chose what is weak to shame the strong, to shame the wise. God doesn't work how we work. Matthew 27. This is a really important passage, and I want to send her here for, the little bit, for a little bit as we talk about this symbolism. This is a passage that actually of, of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew that is actually describing the crucifixion. Uh, it's one of the accounts in the, the Gospels of the crucifixion. In verse 45, it says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, um, what that mean, it doesn't mean from six o'clock to nine o'clock. It actually means from 12 o'clock to three o'clock. That's the way they kind of talked about um, the hours. So from the hours of 12 o'clock to three o'clock, it says that there was darkness over all the land. Now, we uh, don't know how to explain this. I'm sure that there's probably a way for somebody to explain this scientifically, if whether it was eclipse or what. But here's what I want to focus on. Let's go back into the Old Testament again. Let's look at Amos chapter 8. And this is a messianic prophecy looking forward to this very day that we see described in Matthew 27. It says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Surely shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. He's saying, uh, 
the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will not forget their deeds. So their sins, I'm not going to forget them, right? I'm not going to forget them. On their account, this all is going to happen, right? So on that day, he says, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So we see this happening. We see this described in Amos chapter 8, hundreds and hundreds of years before. And now in Matthew 27, we actually see Matthew's account of this actually happening. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, that's Jesus, for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. It's really interesting. Darkness was also the ninth plague that we saw in the book of Exodus in Egypt. So they had three days of darkness followed by what? Anybody remember? The death of the firstborn sons. So Amos is looking backwards and describing in some ways what happened in Egypt when they were delivered. And then he's also looking forward to what's going to happen to the Messiah. So much symbolism. It's all tied together. Again, the tip of the spear is the cross. We have to see this. Let's go back to Matthew 27 in verse 46. It says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. I'm butchering that. Uh, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, and some of the bystanders hearing it said this, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. So this is a really interesting story, and there's a lot of confusion surrounding this, but it's quite simple. What's happening is, has God really turned away and forsaken Jesus? Right? That's the question. When people read this verse, they go, wait a second. I thought Jesus was a part of the unbreakable trinity. What would it mean for God to reject him, for that separation to take place? Because everything that we know and have learned about the trinity, the God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that can't happen. So what's really going on here? What's going on here is that he's calling out Scripture. He's, again, pointing them to himself through the use of Scripture. He's actually quoting Psalm 22. So let's go to Psalm 22. Let's see what it says. Again, I want you guys to just drink in the symbols. Okay, Drink in the symbolism of what's happening here because it's so rich and it makes this story so complete. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if these people knew their Bibles, right? Don't you people read your Bibles? If these people knew their Bibles, when he said that thing, they would go, wait, I've heard that before. And they would flip through, and I'm, not, I'm just kidding, they probably wouldn't flip through their Bible at that moment. But they, they should have known what it was that Jesus was saying. Okay? Psalm 22, let's go to verse 6. It says, But I am a worm and not, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. Go read the account of the crucifixion and see how this lines up. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
Remember what we just read in Matthew 27? They were like, hold on, let's see if Elijah actually really comes and saves him. There, uh, one, of the, one of the thieves that was hanging on a cross next to Jesus actually challenges him in this way and says, if you're, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us? Right? There, were, there were people surrounding the cross that were mocking Jesus in this way. If you say you're the son of God, if you're really the son of God, come down from the cross. And we see this in Psalm 22, the Psalm of David. Verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, there's actually accounts of this actually happening. The Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. They gambled over who got to take Jesus' coat home with them after they crucified him. Now, there were a lot of psalms written by David, and most of them were written about things that he personally experienced. So what's going on here? He's describing an execution. He's describing death. This is not something that David experienced. He points us forward to the Redeemer through the lens of Genesis 3.15. He will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. And sometimes the question is, well, wait, that doesn't seem like a heel bruise. That seems like a head bruise, right? He's being tortured and killed, but that's not the end of the story, right? One other time that Jesus does this, well, there's many other times that Jesus does this, but I want us to see what it is that Jesus is doing here. If we go to Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he walks in his hometown, he walks into the synagogue, into the church, and the way they did church then, uh, one of the things that they did during the church is that they took turns reading that passage of Scripture for the day. And so Jesus walks into his hometown church, he walks up to the podium, opens the scroll to Isaiah, a prophecy about the Messiah, and reads it. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus reads this, closes the scroll, sits down, and everybody's staring at him. And then he says this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Jesus saying to his hometown, says, um, all of that, it's about me. So if we fast forward uh, to Matthew, right, and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out loud, and quoting Psalm 22, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, today, this passage, Psalm 22, is being fulfilled in your presence. All of those passages are now taking place. All the passages that spoke about the coming Messiah, about the coming Redeemer of God, the King of God, they were talking about me, and this is what had to happen. Blood had to be spilt in order for the sins to be redeemed. For that relationship between us and God to be made whole again. For us to be a part of His kingdom and to live as we were meant to live as a part of His kingdom, this had to happen. And yet, if we continue reading in Psalm 22, there's an unbelievable message of hope. In verse 9 it says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. 
from my mother's womb you have been my God. There's hope. Verse 19, but, but you, Lord, be, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. So it started with, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 9, he says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. He's crying out in anguish because he feels forsaken. But at the same time, he understands that God is his strength. Come quickly to help me. And then this is key, verse 24. It says, for he has not despised nor scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the, the afflicted one. That's Jesus. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. He has listened to his cry for help. There's a quote. I don't know who said this, but I thought it was just so perfect. It says this. Jesus is declaring, right now you are witnessing Psalm 22. I seem forsaken right now, but my death is not the end of the story. God has not despised my suffering. I will be vindicated. The Lord has heard my cry because my death is not the end. My death is not the end. And then in verse uh, Psalm 22, verse 30 and 31, posterity shall serve him. History, that is, will serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Think about all of history, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ has continued to be told to generations that at that point were yet what? Unborn. And it will be continue. It will continue to be told to generations that are still to this day yet unborn. That he has done it. He has redeemed us through the cross. Back to Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is literally Jesus screamed. He shrieked. And he dies. The sin of the world all of the brokenness that the world ever experienced, all of the heinous violence and brokenness that we have read about through the Old Testament is all placed on Jesus. He takes it for us. He takes it for you and he takes it for me so that we can be redeemed into God's family, so that we can be a part of God's kingdom, so that we can serve and be a part of the kingdom of God that we were always intended to be a part of. For our sake. And then verse 51. And behold, the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Think back to Amos 8, right? The shaking. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, there's a preview for next week, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. In an instant we see that death conquers the curse of sin and death. We see it. One of the main ways we see this, and this is, again, an unbelievable uh, picture of symbolism here, is the curtain being torn. For 1,500 years, the Israelites had gone to the temple, whether it was in the tent form in the tabernacle or once they built the, the physical temple in Jerusalem, they would go to the temple to worship and to sacrifice to their God. 
Right? This is how they worshipped. And there was this place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. And because of the broken relationship of, between God and man, they weren't allowed to go in there. Only once a year, the priest, after they had purified themselves, went into the Holy Holies to, to, to do some special tasks. And there was this thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And so what we see now, listen to this. Uh, but Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm getting excited. Hebrews chapter 9 again. In verse 6. This is a long passage. Bear with me. I want us to see what's going on here. Okay? Starting in verse 6. Preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section of the temple, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. Into the, the holy of holies, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Right? So we know right there from this scripture that the, 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 the sacrifices made, the sacrifices required of the Israelites were not actually redeeming them. They were pointing to their Redeemer. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. So one of the things that the high priest would do is they would take blood into the holy place and they would sprinkle the blood as a sacrifice to the unintentional sins of the people. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. So this was no longer something that needed to be repeated. This was done once for all. An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person, uh, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant being fulfilled through him, right? He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Max Lucado says this, when Jesus' flesh was torn on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. With no hesitation, we are welcomed into God's presence any day, any time. The barrier of sin is gone. No more curtain. The picture of the curtain being torn means that the presence of God is now again with man, with us. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We no longer have to go through all of these things. Why? Because Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus has offered once for all for the sacrifice of sins through his own blood on the cross. That's an unbelievable truth. 
This is why we can say with such confidence in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did it for you and he did it for me. He did it for us. This is my story. This is my story. Hopefully this is your story. If this is not your story, I would invite you to to, to read John chapter 3 again. If you've never read it, go there and read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right, if we have received, if we have looked at the the curse that has been lifted up, uh, the snake, which represents Jesus, who became the curse for us, was lifted up, was glorified. We'll talk about that more next week uh, for our sins. To redeem us back into God's family, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Back to the garden. Back to the way things are supposed to be. They were never supposed to be broken. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because they were all placed on the person of Jesus on the cross. Not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is us telling this story, living this story in the world, for the world, so that many people can come to Jesus. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, through our changed lives, through the grace of God in us, through our lack of judgment, through our lack of Uh, of evil, for us taking a step back, for standing up for the oppressed, for living for the afflicted, speaking the truth of Jesus to the world around us. The love of Jesus. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We are not the righteousness of God because we go to church. We are not the righteousness of God because we um, we drink less or we cuss less or we have less sex. Whatever that thing is in your mind that makes a good Christian versus a worldly person. We are the righteousness of God because Jesus died on the cross and gave us righteousness. It's not ours. It's his that has been given to us. And all we need to do is to look on him as our king, as our savior, and believe not just that he did that, but that then he is being glorified, he is being lifted up, and we follow him because he is our king. This is the story of the world. This is the story that we have been given. This is the story that we were born into, and this story of redemption is the story that we're invited to take part in. And this is the symbolism that, that we talked about last week when we talked about the, the, the symbol of communion, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus, the night before he died, with his disciples, eating the Passover meal that represented their delivery out of Egypt, their salvation, as it were, out of Egypt, said, this bread now represents my body that's broken. This, this cup 
that represents this blood that was smeared over your doorways so the angel of death would pass over you and not kill your firstborn. It now represents my blood. I am the lamb that was killed so that you would not be killed, so that you would not experience that death. This this meal that you are eating, this symbol speaks of my death for you. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is Jesus. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after saying, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death? How weird is that? We proclaim the Lord's death because we believe that Jesus became king and his coronation was him being lifted up on the cross. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man must be glorified in the same way that the serpent was lifted up, I will be lifted up. We believe that because God doesn't work the way the world works. God uses the weak to shame the strong. God uses what seems foolish to to shame the wise. And we as Christians believe this. It is central, so central to everything that we believe. So right now I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time in worship. And as we do that at home with your families, I would just invite you to take the bread and to take the cup together. Father, we love you. And God, we ask that as we, those separate in body, Father, We are together in spirit. In the same way, Lord, that we know that you said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. We are separated from you bodily, but we are always with you in spirit. And as we worship you, Father, through song, and as we take this meal, we proclaim your death continually knowing that you are coming back, that you will return. And we thank you for these symbols that you have given us to remember you by and to proclaim to the world that you are king. You are king of this world, Father. You are king of everything. We are so grateful for your death. And Father, as we'll learn next week, we are so grateful for your resurrection, that you are no longer dead. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.